Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Welcome back, my dear listeners, and welcome to the month of November. Now, just before we get started here, I do want to kind of make a little bit of an announcement saying that I have been a little bit struggling to get this next episode out, and I apologize for the wait. Turns out that, um, well, with the weather changes here, I've had some problems with my voice in the last couple of weeks, and you may or may not hear it anyway, but I am trying to get everything done properly and in good time here, so please know that I have not forgotten about you, I just wasn't able to talk as well. So, I apologize for the lateness of this particular episode, but I do appreciate you coming back to join me. And with that, I want to say thank you so much, and welcome to the month of November. Last month, we spent quite a long time looking at the most famous vampire of them all, Dracula and how he found his way into the pantheon of universal monsters. We also looked at the folkloric roots that helped to create him, the Wallachian prince whose name he borrowed, and the way that he and other characters around him transformed alongside the vampire's journey through time and media to create a kind of modern fairy tale figure. It was an extended trip through a lot of material, but there was something that we only got to touch on briefly, Something that we didn't get to explore much, and I don't feel got its proper look when we covered it before. Of course, we were focusing on the King of the Vampires last month, and that left very limited time to explore anything or anyone else in any kind of meaningful way. And, as anyone who's read the novels, any version of them, knows it tends to center fairly heavily on the men throughout the story. There's some pretty interesting ladies that got left in the shadows of those stories that I think deserve more of a look. Since that's the case, I've decided to give the boys a bit of a break for the month and pick up a thread that I think is well worth exploring in more depth. This month, we're looking at what happens when the fairer sex gets to play with the fangs and claws. And don't think we're just sticking with our female vampires this time. We got a little look into Lucy and the Brides last time, and we'll have a little visit from her coming up later in this episode. But these ladies have so many more monstrous sisters to meet, and all of them have a story to tell. Whether it's girls discovering they can destroy their peers with their mind, teens who transform in the moonlight, women who harbor a life within their bodies that threatens to destroy everything they love, or cannibalistic crones, these ladies are getting to be the center stage this month. Join me as I endeavor to be your guide, to the world of killer queens and monstrous maidens. As a fair warning at the top of the episode, I will be covering some topics that might be difficult for some listeners to hear. And because of this, I will issue a trigger warning now. I assure you I won't be getting into any graphic details of any assaults of any kind, but there will be discussion of body horror, some violence in fiction, and other things that might make you uncomfortable. 
If you would like to continue to listen and are unsure of what to expect, I'm going to be saving any discussion of anything that I think might be most triggering for the very end. And I'll also be announcing when we're getting into areas that might be problematic. I promise you now that the discussion won't be pulling any surprises. Likewise, the show notes will contain some links that might be triggering for some. As always, I have them annotated and there will be a trigger warning for any links that I include that I am even a little concerned about. Just like last time, there will not be anything at all glorifying any particular violent acts. And the only links that I am looking to include are anything that opens up meaningful discussion about these topics. So, with that, let's make our way to those killer queens. The world of art has always had a bit of a sticky relationship to women and girls. If we think back to the most celebrated tales of literature, we find that a lot of top billing tends to feature mostly men at the forefront. Think Beowulf, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the tales of King Arthur, or even more recent epic tales like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. And you see that most of the time, these stories are about men doing the job of saving the day, with women being put in the sidecar to play only a very limited number of roles. Most of the time, those roles are still to this day reduced down to the prize, the victim, the good girl, or the badass. And we see shades of this echo throughout modern cinema across genres. In recent years, we've seen more ladies come to the front lines, and some have even managed to take a leading role here or there, where they get to be more nuanced than this. But, when it comes to ensembles, they are quite contented, it seems, to join in and let the men take center stage when it comes to destroying rings, ruling kingdoms, or just saving the world. Except when it comes to horror. While far from perfect in this regard, horror has at least been able to boast of a long history of proving that ladies can, and do, excel in the leadership role, when they're able to get one. This is also the case when leadership takes the form of a bloodthirsty monster with her sights on making you suffer. While many of the most popular leading ladies of horror sit in the category of final girl, as coined by Carol J. Clover, there's been many a popular monster girl who wasn't afraid to show off her teeth for the camera. Sometimes these girls are all monster, whether it's changing at the full moon, or committing acts of self-mutilation to keep her flesh-eating tendencies at bay, or catching her young out of your chest and devouring all your crewmates. Other times, she's a little better concealed, only showing off she's a demon when she gets to eat one of the boys at school, or when she kills your would-be rapist by screaming at him until he dies. Sometimes she was trouble from the second she walked in the door, and even without any transformation or magic show acts, she's able to play monster with nothing more than a tube of lipstick or a beautiful singing voice. Before the vamp, and well before Stoker imagined his monstrous ladies, there were stories being passed around of a certain kind of woman, if you could call her that, who spelled the ruin of many a man. Now granted, originally she wasn't all woman so much as she was part bird, or, in some cases, all bird, with just a human face. If we recall, this could be a throwback to Lilith, whom we talked about in the episode on vampire folklore. There were other instances, however, of where a lady figure could appear as a bird to the hapless menfolk and deliver them to their doom, this time via watery grave. While there are other myths out there that encompass this trait, possibly the best known is that of the siren from Greek mythology. 
Interestingly enough, once upon a time, the figure of the siren could be male or female. But as reported by Jessica Ackman-Collins, the male sirens disappear in Greek art by the 5th century BCE, and only depictions of female ones survive. What didn't survive was their form. As you've likely noted, if you're up on your Greek mythology, these sirens look an awful lot more like harpies than they do what we typically think of today. In fact, it wasn't until about the Middle Ages that these deadly singers were seen as sea-dwelling creatures, swapping their feathers for scales, but keeping their alluring voices. This change brings about for us a few traits that would factor into our killer queens to come. For one, while she is still kind of a monster in this form, by the time the siren got her tail, she'd also gotten a bit of a makeover and emerged from fiction and artist depictions by this point as a gorgeous woman with a voice just as beautiful as she was. Prior to this, the song, while still an omen of death, had at least made sense coming from a bird. It was also said that the bird form was carrying the souls of the departed to the underworld, thereby giving our siren a bit more of a grounding for its deadly reputation. As a newly formed mermaid, they were less interested in taking your resting soul into the land of the dead, and much more interested in just making you dead. And the why behind this had taken a bit of a sinister turn by now, too. Originally, sirens had a stake in killing sailors, as failure to do so would result in their own death, as they would throw themselves into the sea upon their defeat. As mermaids, that wasn't about to kill them, so we can interpret their killing game of luring sailors to a watery grave as being something they did for fun. There have been some interpretations of these creatures as having an appetite for human flesh, but also gives us a little more subtext to work with, as these ladies of the sea would eventually give us a basis for the more human man-eaters. According to scholar Marina Warner, in her book From the Beast to the Blonde, it was Christian folklore that helped to redefine the image of the siren to one where men are caught up by their deadly beauty. To be fair, it wasn't a far stretch to apply an archetype, and especially that one, to this particular being. After all, literature does enjoy a good deadly beauty, ranging from tales of Cleopatra to Delilah to Morgan Le Fay, each coming with their own warning about the dangers of wanting such women. The difference with these women, however, is that they were always figures in pursuit of something that might otherwise be denied to them like power or revenge. The Siren, while originally stuck in a reality of better you than me, when it came to death games, was now just in it because they could be. The general crime of most of the sailors who met their end was that they'd become a victim of their own desires, rather than any specific desires the ladies of the sea had. Besides, you know, killing or potentially eating them, that is. We can make an obvious straight line from these stories to the figure that was so well represented by the likes of Theta Bera or Louise Brooks. She's gotten a few makeovers over the years, but the general consensus is about the same. She's a gorgeous woman dressed in a way that makes all the men around her ache with desire, and she knows it. She will exploit their weaknesses to get whatever she wants and give nothing in return. Worse yet, even if she dies in the story, she still got what she wanted right up to the end. She is untamed and unattainable, even by the star of the show. And just like the sirens before her, 
She knows all the right notes to hit to make men jump through whatever hoop she pleases, sometimes just for fun. The femme fatale is an archetype that has been capturing imagination since the Middle Ages, mostly as a means of showcasing the dangers of what happens when women's unbridled sexuality is allowed to flourish. In the modern age, this might seem a little overwrought, but this fear was, and in many respects still is, very real for some, particularly men who benefit from dominance over others. A telling example of this fear put into plain language was best represented by Joris Karl Husman in his work Arabor in regards to the figure of Salome. He describes her as the goddess of immortal hysteria, the curse of beauty supreme above all other beauties, a monstrous beast of the apocalypse, indifferent, irresponsible, insensible, poisoning. We're going to focus for a moment on some major key themes that present themselves in that quote, namely the dichotomy of extreme beauty and indifference or irresponsibility. The beautiful woman as a trope is not news, but what makes her special in this case, and in these stories, is how she's presented as the feminine ideal. She isn't just beautiful by some standards, but instead is the epitome of what men specifically desire. This is most unfortunate for them because they can never have her, which is where the indifference comes into play. She's well aware that you think you love her. She's heard your pleas for her attention and knows all about your conquest to capture her heart, or at least her body, and she does not care. In some variants of this trope, we might see her interest piqued by the mention of money, but the moral of the gold digger story is usually that it ends with a dead husband and a merry widow. This is the true fear behind the image of the femme fatale, ultimately. It shows that no amount of effort or influence will secure you what you want, and, as Marina Warner stated, ends in men's anguish in the face of female indifference. What's more, that anguish might not end in just the sweet release of death. One of the things pointed out by Huisman was that this beautiful woman, in his case Salome, is irresponsible. This is something that might seem counterintuitive to our killer ladies, as they usually have a more calculating method of dealing with the men of their stories. But scholar Virginia Allen, as quoted by Susan Walter, sheds some light on what manner of responsibility this woman is avoiding. While mythology and literature have taken to using euphemisms like a bewitching voice that would cause one to drive a boat onto the rocks to represent feminine power, there's no such sleight of hand when it comes to the femme fatale in what she represents. She is a sexual being, and she does so for her pleasure, not yours. It's true that some men may even get to have sex with her, but they cannot actually keep her, and this is where her indifference really shines. Alan stated that the femme fatale's rejection of motherhood is one of her most threatening qualities, since, by denying his immortality and his posterity, it leads to the ultimate destruction of the male. This is possibly the most damning thing about the femme fatale. She will always be her own master, free from the domestic life and especially free from masculine control. In this way, it's almost worse than if you were denied the ability to touch her at all. 
In that case, where there was no chance that she might allow you to have her sexually, there is no promise of any kind of future. That taste is so much more insidious because it's the illusion of getting the happy ending you want, and when her prey is good and hooked, she's able to dash that to pieces, forever ruining the fantasy and the man with it. There's a perceived cruelty to it that, like the sirens, she's doing it for sport. This is where, oftentimes, horror and thriller films come in to mess with that narrative. I'm lumping the two together in this instance because the two are capable of presenting this alluring woman in a couple of different ways, but the fear they represent and the horror they create is the same. That said, we're going to be unpacking them separately for how they get to the end result. Since we're already on this particular track, let's start with what happened to the femme fatale over time. While we've already established that there was quite a precedent for this archetype, the first time that she graced the silver scream was in the form of the vamp, as portrayed by Theda Berra in 1915's A Fool There Was. In the film, she's referred to as the vampire woman, but unlike someone like Dracula's brides or Carmilla, her vampiric nature takes the form of exhausting a man's mind and his will. We're going to chat more about those ladies of the night who actually use their fangs right away here, but we're going to veer away from that for now and concentrate on how this haunting image of early cinema eventually made its way into different avenues of media to ensnare its male victims. Up to this point, while there are certain exceptions to the rule, most of the downfall of the menfolk in these stories has been attributed to coming across danger and not heeding the warning to stay away. The siren song is irresistible to those who hear it, so it's best just not to hear it. The deadly women of early literature were the ruin of only the men who crossed their path, so it was best to keep on the straight and narrow definitions of what was acceptable, and that would guarantee a sin-free and puritanical life. Even in regards to the Theta Bera film, the men are all coming into the territory that they should best leave alone. In the age of the detective story, we saw the predatory femme fatale could hunt outside of her usual realm as well. We also got a front row seat to her antics that gave her the killer queen title. By the 1920s, the femme fatale had made her mark on the silver screen, but she had also managed to find her way into other media particularly radio shows and especially books. Detective and crime stories were a staple in the world of old radio plays, and much of this was owing to the popularity of the gritty allure of the crime and detective stories like the Maltese Falcon or the Big Sleep. Sweeping aside the antics of Miss Marple and Sherlock Holmes came the tough and often down-on-his- luck likes of Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe. These were men of the hard-boiled world of mystery fiction, who'd seen it all and a pretty face wasn't going to sway them. Well, most of the time. Then there was noir fiction, which not only brought you into the world of these hardened men, usually small-time criminals or people destined to become them, but also set up all the pins for you to watch them fall. The women of these worlds had to overcome quite a bit to create any friction in the lives of such broken men. After all, it wasn't like they were just hapless sailors who came too close to the wrong island, or even normal men who were happy enough, if ultimately bored by domestic bliss. As such, she had to be someone as alluring and terrifying in scope as Huseman's description of Salome. 
Sometimes there's a clear reason to be terrified of her. If she's a woman who just happens to have a terrible time staying married, on account of all the dead husbands, it becomes rather obvious where her monstrous streak is. Then there are other women who possess a kind of je ne sais quoi that makes them frightening to their male prey. Take, for instance, the work of author David Goodis, as studied by Eddie Dugan. In his paper, Life's a Bitch, he writes about a few tales but focuses on the 1954 story of the blonde on the street corner, wherein the titular blonde is both the temptress and tormentor of the ne'er-do-well main character. He's surprisingly frank about how she makes him feel in this passage, where Goodis writes, From a deeper point of view, he was afraid of her. There was something about her that caused his brain to sizzle, and he was really afraid of her. The blonde is forbidden to this man, as all the women of these stories always are, but there is something more about her that he can sense his own destruction in without the aid of a gun or a dead husband to tell him these things. In this case, she's forbidden through the fact that she's married to the brother of someone he's good friends with, but that's just set dressing for the real reason that she's frightening. It's only when he gives into temptation, in a truly unpleasant sex scene that I will give warning is totally not worth reading, that he sees that in surrendering to his baser instinct has lost him any future or the illusion of it with the other woman of this story. His triumph over the body of the woman he wanted is rendered hollow, and his ruin at this point is inevitable. That was the true horror of the women of Noir. They might leave you alive, but at that point, you're not sure that it wasn't just the last cruel trick she played. The road of the hard-boiled detective is similar, in that he never manages to capture the woman either, but in all fairness, no one ever does. His compensation is that he lives to tell the tale, and usually with little more than a flesh wound or two, and a crippling alcohol problem, but nothing he won't move past. Except for the liver damage, but he was going to get that anyway. If we fast forward a bit, we see that these killer queens might have softened a bit over time, finding a compromise between being misunderstood rather than outright evil for the sake of it. Sometimes we see her delivering justice where she was denied it. Sometimes she's cheeky, never letting the hero have her, but flirting with the idea of it, giving him and the audience a sense that eventually he might tame her yet. And sometimes they were just out for money and get destroyed in the end for their greed. In any case, the femme fatale would never disappear entirely, but she would get a makeover in the 90s when she became an ice-cold blonde bombshell that made sure that everyone was paying attention when she uncrossed her legs. Of course, I'm speaking about the infamous interrogation scene where Sharon Stone flashes the detectives more than a smile, in basic instinct. Now, we've passed over quite a lot of time between the heyday of noir and hard-boiled to here, but we're highlighting this particular narrative for a couple of reasons. First and most obvious, it was the film that brought the femme fatale back into the world of pop culture. I would argue that an archetype like this never truly disappears, but she hadn't been reinvented in a long while since the days of those old detective stories. For better or worse, depending on who you ask. Just like our noir narratives of yesteryear, this movie presents us with a disgraced cop with two options for feminine companionship, and one of them is going to end up killing him. Because this is a noir film, 
Though it's not expressly stated, he chooses the wrong one, of course. That wouldn't be enough to make Catherine Trammell interesting, controversial, or even memorable, though. All femme fatales are the ones that these down-and-out men desire, even when they understand it's going to ruin them, or, as in this case, is going to make it significantly more pressing to cross off those bucket list items in the near future. What does make her stand out among the blonde bombshells who have darkened the bedroom door of their doomed target is that this was the first time that her prey wasn't expressly male. In fact, Catherine embodies such a strong sexual appetite that she seems to have no preference at all, willingly engaging in sex with men and women whenever the opportunity remotely piques her interest. This is definitely in keeping with the femme fatale, but also hit a bit of a sore spot with many, as it also carries on the long-standing Hollywood tradition of making monsters of queer characters. Now, in all fairness, Catherine Trammell is only bisexual through the lens of someone who has no idea what bisexuality is actually like. This doesn't excuse making the queer people of the narrative into ruthless, horrible killers. But it should be noted that, like all femme fatales, she doesn't belong to anyone, nor does she even really care that much about the loss of any given male or female lover. For her, it's all about the game that she can play with these people, and when they become boring, she kills them and makes room for her next victim. We're going to pause here and talk a bit about desire, which has been a central theme in these stories up to this point. These monstrous women all share a common trait in that they have something about them that emphatically and entirely captures men's desires. Whether it's their bodies, their voices, or what they represent, these figures are heralded as being more than woman can possibly live up to. She's always the one to be desired, but there's often a bit of a lack in figuring out what she wants. There are definitely some femme fatales that want something, often money or power, but as we see in the case of Catherine Trammell, sometimes they kill for sport. The sirens did too, for the most part. As Eddie Dugan had unpacked in his paper on David Goodis, and this could be applied to most, if not all, of these narratives, the underlying issue of these tales is the fear that sits beneath men's desires. This leaves little to no room to worry about what these women want. Sure, they might want money or revenge or to eat you, but the main attraction in these stories is to be aware because they want your money, your revenge, or to eat you. What you see in this is the horror that comes from the idea that a woman could be that powerful and the monstrous things she could do with that kind of control. In that sense, so many of these movies and books treat her the same way that we treat slashers like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers. It doesn't matter to the men of these hard-boiled stories what the women are doing it for so much as they can. So what happens when you hand a woman the keys to the femme fatale story? You get a movie called Promising Young Woman. Originally set to come out in April of this year, the film is now being released, maybe, in December. Thank you, COVID. The premise of the film tells the story of a woman named Cassie, who brings about the ruin of men through manipulating their desires, naturally. But what makes this different than all the others is how she does it and what it says about the men rather than the woman herself. Cassie goes to a new bar each week, feigning to be drunk enough that she can't tell where she is or what's going on, and eventually, a man will approach her to take her home with him. 
When he believes that she's passing out, he begins to help himself to her body, only to discover that she's fully aware of what he's doing, and she's about to show him how monstrous she can get. Now obviously, what we have available to us at the time of this recording is only a trailer, so we don't see what becomes of her victims, but given what we do know about her from this brief viewing, she has some medical training and the interest in using it to exact revenge. This whole scenario brings about more color to the canvas than we've seen before with our fatal beauties. For one, Cassie has a fairly obvious motivation, and there's even hinted that there might be more than one. She states that she wanted to be a doctor her whole life, and it's clear that this dream was stolen from her based on something that happened while she was still a student. This reframes her as being a kind of anti-hero for the narrative, as she is the one we project our sympathies on, even when she is no less deadly to the men of the story. Some might argue that this makes her less of a femme fatale, and I'll concede that it does change the formula a bit, but that's only because it's the first time that we're seeing a deadly beauty telling her own tale with a motive that isn't purely about ruining men for sport. After all, we've seen women who wanted revenge in these kinds of stories before, but it was always framed as being far more sympathetic to the male leads than it was to honoring why she wanted revenge in the first place. Again, this comes back to the topic of men's desires and how it's used to ensnare them. What makes these examples particularly horrifying in modern times is how all of them, with the exception of possibly the sirens, are of human women exacting a kind of terrible power over their prey. There is a particularly insidious thread to this that showcases how women's intelligence is synonymous with their capacity to be evil. What these narratives almost never show, with the exception of our last example with Cassie, is how these men's desires have helped to create their own monster out of these women. The women of these stories thrive only when they are given the attention of the men whose perspective we are given. If we think back to Homer, Odysseus was only able to thwart the sirens by plugging his ears and having himself fastened to the mass of the ship, rendering him incapable of responding to their deadly call. If the men of any of these books or films had been able to focus their attention to take it away from the women they so desired, they would not have been destroyed. Therein lies the key to what makes this kind of story so engaging and why this trope has lasted so long. It's taking something that many women in the real world feel threatened and trapped by and weaponizing it. What's more, the horror really lies in the grounding in the fact that she isn't a curse or a ghost or anything other than a human being with the will to do harm. There are certainly gray areas, such as Theta Bear's contribution, but even though she's called a vampire, her drain on the man in question is all through a kind of invisible force of will. And people were outraged by a fool there was because, in the end, she escapes without any punishment for the man's ruin. Her victory here is even more frightening for the audience because not only did she have the power to force her will on someone else for the hell of it, but also that she could get away with it. His downfall was completely attributed to her assumed power over him and not his lack of will to resist a desire that we all agree was forbidden. This is another reason why what we see with Cassie is so important in the development of this trope. 
It's the first time that we've seen men having to shoulder the accountability for their ruin at the hands of a powerful woman. Cinema has seen fit to look at the story of the vamp's point of view, holding those who venture into her web accountable for things they know are wrong. For most of the history of this particular archetype, the order of the day had to be restored at the end, but we're seeing more and more that doesn't always have to happen. As we move more through modern times, we see the true horror is that her monstrous nature cannot be contained or taken back. After all, Catherine is alive and well at the end of Basic Instinct, and while we don't know what Cassie's fate will be in Promising Young Woman, the trailer makes it clear she got what she wanted quite a few times before the end of the film. And before we move on to our more supernatural sisters in the world of Killer Queens, let's take a short break to hear from our friend of the podcast, Naomi, about her podcast, Dope Nostalgia. You remember that sound? Yeah, you do. The 1990s. It was fun! Lots of fun music, good times, bookended by pop bands. And right in the middle, we got a little grungy. So many artists came and went and left us wondering, what are they doing now? We know what Marky Mark ended up doing, but what about the rest of the funky bunch? Alanis Morissette had a pop career before she made it big with Jagged Little Pill. The KLF, an EDM band from England, got Tammy Wynette to sing on one of their tunes. All kinds of crazy stuff happened, and we're going to talk to you about it with interviews with some of the biggest stars of the 90s on Dope Nostalgia, the podcast. I'm Naomi Carmack, and I'm your host. Check us out on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts. And look us up on the internet at dopenostalgia.com. Now that we're back from our little break, we're going to take a look at those killer queens that are hiding more than an amazing intellect behind those long lashes. So far, we've been focusing our attention on characters that are meant to stand in for real women. They aren't, of course. Real women have far more restrictions at work to keep them from ever attaining anything like the power they would need to even try half of what these ladies have done. In fact, most of the women who've played these roles were fighting very real issues behind the scenes. Theta Barra was so badly typecast as the vamp, and further hampered by studio publicity makers who insisted on fabricating backstories about her family to make her seem more exotic and mysterious, that it strangled her career the second she decided she wanted to try to act in anything else. To audiences, she was that wicked temptress that no man could deny, but behind the camera, her career was molded by only what the men who owned Hollywood wanted to see of her. Likewise, when Sharon Stone played the killer writer for Basic Instinct, she's portrayed to be the kind of woman who's in complete control at all times. By contrast, when shooting the movie, during the infamous scene where she flashes the detectives during her interrogation, originally the actress had been wearing white underwear that the director insisted she remove, because he claimed it was causing glare issues. Stone was promised that her Volvo would be concealed in shadow, but only found out that her genitals were completely visible when the film was shown to test audiences. These are only two examples of how these women, who have so successfully portrayed the fatal sirens that we've spent hundreds of years fearing, still couldn't use that power against the system. When reading tales of situations like this, many women empathize 
feeling their own frustrations with restrictions or the casual exploitative measures they've had to go through themselves. It's through these shared experiences that many women also draw comfort in seeing the spectacle of when the tables turn in ways that are chaotic and powerful to the point of being utterly devastating. Now, I do want to take a second here to give a brief word about a subgenre known as rape revenge films. Before we move any further, rest assured, I'm not going to be discussing any particular films or acts from them, nor are there any links or articles about this subgenre in the show notes. I will note that there is a chapter in Carol J. Clover's book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, about this, but it says it right in the chapter title and is easily avoidable if you're concerned about it. Also, if you are a survivor of sexual or domestic violence, I am including links in the show notes this time for your resources to help you if you are in need. Please don't suffer in silence because there are people who are out there willing and able to help you. You can guess from the title of the subgenre what these films entail, and like all horror, some of it's really well done and some of it is horrible. I'm only acknowledging it here to say that while some of these films can be used to discuss the role men play in the creation of their own monsters, the women of these films are not monsters at all, and though some of these stories are incredibly powerful and may be very cathartic to some, ultimately there are other ways to talk about monstrosity in women without needing to highlight their trauma in that way. So with that in mind, let's leave the realm of human women and this particular subgenre behind and make our way back in time to look at some killer queens of literature who gave the vamp to cinema. As we've talked about before, horror has long held a place for women in ways that other genres just won't. The establishment of the final girl is such an institution now that we've seen directors and writers get crafty with it, playing with what it means or who that final girl can actually be. That said, it's also not afraid to cast women in the role of the aggressor in ways that are more obviously threatening than our femme fatales. Whereas their monstrous human counterparts tend to rely on beauty, charm, intelligence, and men's desires for sex and control as their weapons, the supernatural deadly ladies are mostly interested in the first and the last part of that equation. And whereas the femme fatale is usually motivated by money or revenge or just lavishing in the power that she has for the hell of it, most of these monstrous beauties usually have a single motive, which is turning you into lunch. Over the years, those motives have gotten at least a little more diverse, but so has their prey. The you they happen to be hunting can be anyone, it seems. While it's true that a lot of the more significant deaths are reserved for the male characters, more often than not, these films will still feature them killing women who either present a challenge to their aims, or, if Hollywood really wants to fill up their fear-mongering bingo card, introducing some queer fear subtext. Fear of sapphic love, in particular, has been a long-standing but often subtle part of the cinematic world, and this is one of the areas that horror has stepped entirely back in line with the rest of the world, often making these bi or lesbian characters into their own breed of monster. There are obvious examples of this, like in Basic Instinct, though again, that character isn't really all that interested in love, as she is in power and sex. The truly insidious characters are more often ones like Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, as imagined by Hitchcock. Her love for the title character is so poisonous to her mind and everyone around her, it would lead her to attempted murder in trying to coax the lead into killing herself. 
Of course, this fear of women loving each other was well established by our supernatural lady killers long before this, and among the most famous of them was J. Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla. We barely touched on Carmilla's story last month, and sadly, we aren't going to be able to get too far into it now, but we can give her the credit she deserves in exploring her place in the world of the monstrous feminine. While not the first vampire in literature, as we saw last month, she is one of the most prominent figures in pop culture as a female vampire. In the days of Hammer, her name was just as important as Dracula's, and while the two were never paired, there was a kind of understanding in the horror genre that if Dracula was the king, Carmilla was the queen of their vampires. What's interesting about this, however, is that they held their own dominion in their respective titles, and it should be noted that even though Carmilla didn't quite have the same drawing power as the Count did, she did have quite the hold on cinema for a while. But Hammer didn't do her that many favors, often invoking sex appeal in place of her story, and they carried over even less of her story than they did of the Transylvanian Count. Of course, she was still a beautiful vampire in those films, but she had all the same qualities of your run-of-the-mill femme fatale, except she was an actual vamp, and she did bite the men she preyed upon. And yes, her target was always men because the real Carmilla story had been deemed too much for the likes of cinema back in the day. To truly get a sense of what made Carmilla so threatening, even decades after, we have to go back to the book. For more on vampires throughout history, go ahead and visit the show notes for my Dracula episodes, and you'll find a lot more resources there to pick through and learn more. One of the things you'll learn is that historically, the vampires of folklore were known as a kind of restless undead, and they weren't limited by gender, nor were their attacks. While most of the tales and poetry written about these creatures either draw from the folkloric tendencies of feeding on those they knew in life, or drew from the mythology well, and mimed a lot of the same traits as the harpies, the vampire became significantly more heteronormative and cunning around the time that Polidori decided to make Lord Byron into one. Now granted, like we saw in Dracula, the story of Ruthven might show him victimizing women, but there is an undeniable tension between the titular vampire and the narrator, Aubrey, in that story. Much like Dracula would do later, there's a kind of unspoken power imbalance between the two men of the story, one constantly keeping the other in check through manipulation and lies. The result is that this is all just queer subtext, able to be observed from the story if that's what you want to see from it. There's no such sleight of hand really when it comes to Carmilla, though. First of all, we should establish that, while it might not seem like it, Carmilla was not only one of the most prominent female vampires in literature, she was also the first one who actively hunted her prey. Where Dracula's brides were all about getting their claws on Jonathan Harker when he fell asleep in the wrong part of the castle, they weren't apt to attack him, or anyone else, when it wasn't convenient. In fact, we never see them hunt at all, and it suggested they wouldn't if Dracula wasn't giving them babies to munch on. Carmilla, on the other hand, was proactive about selecting who she was going to prey upon. She didn't wait for someone to wander into her castle or happen upon her crypt. She was going to find the person that she specifically wanted and orchestrated her own plots to get closer to them. 
and in a move that was guaranteed to be horrifying to a heteronormative society, her victims were always young women that were on the cusp of marrying age. Worse yet, this vampire wasn't simply snarling or mocking her victims, showing off her fangs before she would destroy them, but rather, she was tender and affectionate with them. In a sense, she loves her prey to death, showing a kind of genuine care for them, but still feeding on them nonetheless. This was well before the epic trials of Oscar Wilde, but his downfall merely shed light on the way that men were treated for straying from the enforced understanding of the norm in Victorian society. Because women of the day were regarded as being the fairer sex in Europe, much of this attitude stemming from those Darwinian ideas that had people thoroughly upset about the idea of tumbling down that evolutionary ladder. While there were still rules to govern their bodies, there was very little thought given to what their forbidden desires might be. In England particularly, and presumably elsewhere in the Commonwealth and where colonial rule held sway, there were laws regarding sodomy and indecent relationships, but they were specifically in regards to men's actions with other men. Now, some of this may come down to the fact that the role of men in society at the time was far more visible and specific in how they were meant to behave. So when they had affairs with another man, it was harder for them to hide it for as long. After all, it had never been socially unacceptable for women to gather together in ways that allowed them closeness and intimacy that isn't related to sex. That isn't to say that it was always encouraged, however, as medical professionals from the area were quick to diagnose women with a catch-all condition called hysteria, particularly if they seemed to be acting out of the norm. According to Anish Baskar's paper, The Vampire in the House, American neurologist from 1884, Silas Weir Mitchell, claimed that hysteria was contagious among women and that any connection between them would eventually spread this condition, whose symptoms were literally anything that a doctor might find concerning, from the banal to symptoms of mental illness or trauma. That said, no one was truly stopping Victorian women from forming friendships and, unlike their male counterparts, there was no concern about where their desires lay because, ultimately, there was very little to no concern about their desires at all. That said, while the law might have ignored that the two women who were best friends had a tendency to spend all their free time together, this doesn't mean that it was a time when sapphic love was easy for anyone. It should also be noted that a love affair between two women, much like with two men, will not produce a child, and that is a significant factor in why it was absolutely taboo. Women's pleasure was not historically something that was of any concern in the grand scheme of things, because their role in patriarchal society is to become a mother to, specifically, white children. Again, this links back to Darwin and his theories that were used to push the agenda that whiteness and maleness was the apex of human evolution. White men had to control white women, who were regarded as having less control over themselves and less development in their faculties. This would be terribly at risk to potentially couple with someone undesirable to the aims of society, and causing that fall from grace everyone was, and still often is, terrified of. Of course, this links right back to racist ideals of making sure that she isn't creating babies with people of the wrong color or wrong genetic background. 
This also means that she shouldn't be having sex in any way that might not produce a baby, as that was assumed to be the only thing she should desire at all. The idea of two women coupling would go entirely against their only designated role in society, and worse yet, allow them to ignore the wants or needs of men. Carmilla holds such power, and the fact that she takes care to target younger girls, who just happen to be right within the age range that would be great for marrying them off, is even more of a threat. What's more, her monstrous activities might actually feel good on some level, and provide something that a man couldn't. Within the context of the story, what Carmilla can offer to the main character, Laura, is more of a satisfying bond than any of the male adults can. Laura lives alone with her father and is starved for attention and affection from other people, and is left bitterly lonely. When she meets Carmilla, the two girls share an immediate connection, not only through their shared dreams and memories, but also through the understanding of what it means to be isolated. After all, Carmilla isn't exactly traveling around with a group or lounging in a castle with three male suitors at her disposal. When she's revealed in the end to be a vampire, she is found alone. There's something to be said about the fact that the monster of the story is capable of empathizing with the trials of the human girls that she preys upon. Again, she offers more than simple friendship, but also a kind of bond that allows them to feel and express the depths of their loneliness and their needs for more than just to be the so-called angel of the house. Worse than this, she can stir within them a feeling that can be both confusing and desirable. When Carmilla feeds off of Laura, the main character is horrified by it, but also admits to a certain amount of pleasure in the act, which leaves her confused. This differs wildly from the scene where Dracula is caught attacking Mina Harker. Where the Count is forcing Mina to partake of his blood by force, Carmilla's approach includes kissing Laura's cheek and holding her like a lover. Now, I want to note that none of this means that this wasn't an attack on Carmilla's part, but it's also worth noting that even when Laura thinks she saw Carmilla attacking her, she wasn't immediately itching to kill her. And it's also a little telling that even well after the vampire is violently killed by the men of the story, Laura lives but never fully recovers. Of course, Carmilla isn't our only vampire girl to create panic in the hearts of men though this one does so for different reasons. As we saw last month, the Transylvanian Count succeeded in disrupting English patriarchal norms at least once, if only for a short while. His first victim, according to most versions of the story anyway, was Lucy Westernra, and her monstrous transformation is made all the more tragic because, up until she had to rise from her grave and become that demanding undead creature, she was doing exactly what she was supposed to. In my previous examination of Stoker's novel, we discussed how, from the beginning of her tale, Lucy was meant to be the doomed woman. To be entirely clear, from the standpoint of the narrative, she did nothing wrong at all. She was everything that the old aristocracy demanded that she be. Charming, polite, passively waiting for the reactions of the men around her, allowing them to propose marriage to her rather than express her interest for the man that she preferred, and letting them dictate her fate when she fell ill. Up to that point where she rises from the grave and begins to attack people of her own accord, she's completely content to be entirely passive in all things. 
There are glimpses, however, of a kind of rebellious streak to her that were amplified in later adaptations of the tale. There's been much made of her statement about how a girl should be allowed to marry as many men would have her, but that says more about her maturity level than her desires for more men. Lucy, we have to remember, was barely more than a teenager, and her interests in getting married in the story were fairly limited when compared to Mina's practicality. Whereas Mina was preparing for her duties to become that angel of the house, and even reorganizing her life to suit that of her future husband, Lucy was going about business as usual until she got sick. Here, we're going to see a couple of different interpretations on what Lucy's monstrousness had to say about the role of women in the Victorian period. For those who aren't aware or haven't read the book, once Lucy succumbs to the mystery illness that the audience knows to be the work of a vampire, the girl no longer looks sick, and when she rises at night, she takes on a kind of voluptuousness that horrifies her former suitors. In her vampiric state, Lucy then turns to attacking children, biting a new one each night until she's caught and stopped by the crew of light. She uses her new wanton beauty to try to seduce Arthur specifically, only to be driven back by Van Helsing before the four men drive the stake into her body and cut off her head. We're going to get to her death and its similarities to Carmilla's demise shortly here. And before we do, I'll issue a fair warning before we begin chatting about it. For the moment, however, let's talk about Lucy's brief career as a vampire. In her 1995 book, Our Vampires Ourselves, scholar Nina Auerbach wrote that vampirism in Dracula does not challenge marriage, and the Count had baptized Lucy into wifely fidelity. There is merit to this argument, as Auerbach points out, that when the new vampire advances on the crew of light, she calls out only to her fiancé, and states that, in her new state, Lucy's flighty nature is now pinned down into marriage. That said, if this is what the men of the crew of light view as a marriage, it says more about their fears of entrapment than Lucy's. It should also be noted that Lucy's primary victims were children, and she only turned on the men when she was approached by them. Like the sirens of the past, she calls people to her, enticing them to her web before making a snack of them. Now, starting with the first part, let's talk about that marriage between our vampire bride and her husbands. If we recall from the book, when Van Helsing first performed the blood transfusion, Arthur had declared himself already her husband, seeing it as a kind of consummation of their union. The thing is that she gets transfusions from the rest of her suitors, and even Van Helsing, with all of their collective efforts going directly back to Dracula. In making her a vampire, Dracula has not granted the wishes of the men, but of Lucy, allowing her to enter a kind of marriage with as many men wanted her. It's also worth noting that Lucy always preferred Arthur best, so it's not a surprise that she would attempt to seduce him first. What is of interest, however, is that this marriage that Dracula has facilitated for her has made her beyond just a vampire. As a vampire, Lucy is not going to be the angel of the house that we've referred to a few times now. Rather than being the soft-spoken, obedient wife and mother who is sexually available to her husband to further his legacy, she's described as being wanton with a cruelty to her beauty. 
This time around, she actively chooses Arthur, telling him to come to her rather than waiting for his proper invitation. More importantly, this would be the first time that she alone would be the recipient of his blood, as well as the first time that she would be the one demanding it for her own purposes. Obviously, many people have likened this to the consummation of a marriage, and Stoker does imply it as such by talking at length about how the men were all drawn to her voluptuousness and her striking beauty but repelled by the way that her innocence was now gone. Like the femme fatales to come, she is dangerously sexy, but that sex isn't going to lead to children and motherhood. In fact, in preying on children, Lucy could be seen as committing the ultimate sin of rejecting her maternal duties. Instead of a woman who brings life, she brings these young children into death. Worse yet, though, through this power, she can and does reject the men by creating her own legacy. Arthur isn't necessary for her to begin her own family, and she can create all the children she wants without him. Of course, this wouldn't do at all. And as we already know, the only way to deal with a woman this monstrous is to kill her. And we are now reaching the part of the discussion where things might get a bit uncomfortable for some. If you won't be joining me for the end, I'll thank you now for listening, and hope that you'll join me again for part two when we look at monstrous maidens. This is where we're going to be looking at the life cycle of our otherworldly girls from childhood to crone. For the rest of us, however, we're going to make our way to the fate of many a killer queen, her unenviable death. We've seen before that death isn't always a guarantee for some of our killer queens. But so many narratives are built around the idea that a wicked woman cannot go without being punished, that most of the stories that we find her in, she's going to die. And we get the on-screen death for her because she was special. It's important that her death be something that we not only witness, but experience viscerally to know that she's being punished. Think of a character like Myrtle Wilson in The Great Gatsby. She's a bold woman who's unapologetically unfaithful to her husband and openly defiant of him and even her lover on occasion. For her troubles, she is struck by a car and her body is laid out on a work table to be shown to the men of the story and to the audience. It should be noted that her death gets more description in this than the title character of the book. Then again, as we'll see shortly here, this is something that's pretty par for the course. The body on display isn't always a necessity, but it does make the point about the power dynamic between the men and these powerful women of the story. The death these women suffer is not only observed, but dissected, sometimes giving off a feeling that the protagonists, and by extension the audience, can be certain that she's really dead. When a powerful woman is killed off, her body has to be seen, and often her trauma inspected in the form of breaking down her body into parts. It's not just a punishment for the character, but also a signal to the audience that the patriarchal order has been restored, and that the men can rest easier now, knowing that the threat is gone. Of course, that doesn't mean that they respect the body at all, or the power of the person who once inhabited it. Sometimes depending on the film and the genre our killer queen has landed in, the story will further denigrate her physical form. As we've alluded to before, 
Our vampire ladies that we've discussed are both subject to graphic, violent, and unnecessarily brutal deaths. Now, in the episode I did on folkloric vampires, we did see that it is customary to put a stake or a rod of some kind through the body of someone deemed to be the unquiet dead, which was not limited to, but always included, suspected vampires throughout history. The point of doing this in history was to keep the vampire from being able to get out of the coffin and anchoring its flesh, and by extension its soul, to the ground. And from what we know of real cases where this was done, while it was good to have a man of the cloth there, anyone could perform these acts. Lefanu and Stoker introduced a much more uncomfortable end for Our Lady Vampires, gathering the men of their respective stories to do the deed against the women involved. In Dracula specifically, of all the vampires involved, including the main antagonist, whose name graces the title of the book, Lucy's death is the only one where almost all of the men preside over her corpse, and hers is the most graphic and horrific death. Of course, Carmilla's demise is no less horrific, as the vampires found in her tomb shown to be barely breathing, her heart still beating, and with her eyes open. If that last bit is a touch more uncomfortable, it's likely because the way that Carmilla is presented doesn't seem like she's dead at all but it does mirror the effects of an anesthetic. The fact that she screams when she's staked also means that she might not be aware when her attackers arrive, but she's still capable of feeling pain. Lucy is also shown reacting when she has the stake driven into her, highlighting that what they do to these women is not an elegant act of setting them free, but a punishment that they are meant to feel as they endure it. Herein lies the ugliest element of their deaths, in how closely it parallels to rape and necrophilia. In fact, the scene where Lucy or any of her adaptive counterparts is staked, Nina Auerbach describes as being closer to a gang rape or to gynecological surgery and affirms that the staking of the female vampire is less a rite of purification than the licensed torture of a woman who knew women don't need men. In both the cases of Carmilla and Lucy, we can see the thread of this punitive element to their staking, the former for her audacity to take a female victim away from the men of the story, and the latter for her ability to demand from them and to deny their authority over not only her as a commodity, but also her capability to create a legacy of her own without them. We know this to be true, especially in Dracula, as the men's bodies in that story remain almost entirely untouchable, and even when the main vampire is finally penetrated, his body is not pinned to the ground, and his death scene does not focus in on his shrieks and wails of agony. What's important to keep in mind here is that Dracula, while needing to be pushed back as a foreign element that Stoker didn't want to corrupt the English world, did not need to be restrained in the end, nor did he even need to be decapitated. Only the women of the story, and others like it, were required to be pinned when they could not react, and beheaded into silence. In both these stories, there's discomfort not only for how violent the acts are in their domination of female bodies, but also the taboo of exacting what could be read as a sexual revenge on those bodies that are no longer alive. In fact, Carmilla and Lucy's bodies are targeted primarily because they're understood to be dead, 
In an article written by Kelly from the podcast The Spinsters of Horror, called The Vulnerability of the Female Corpse, she examines four different films that feature a woman's dead body being the object of men's desires, as well as its subjugation to those men's destructive impulses to dominate it. In unpacking these films, Kelly writes about how each of the bodies is sexualized before the men help themselves to it, reminding us that none of the men would have had sex with a dead male identifying body, so it's less about the necrophilia than it is about power. We've touched on this twice in regards to Lucy's death versus Dracula's, showcasing that the men of the story had no need to dominate or possess the body of another man. Now in reality, laws on who owns a corpse are somewhat vague and will change depending on what country, state, or province you might be in, but in the Western world, a dead body is not something that you can hold claim to legally. The person is still in possession of themselves, even after they're dead which is why it's illegal to harvest organs from a viable donor if they have not expressly given permission while they were alive. Where this comes into play for our discussion is in the question asked by Kelly's article, Can a Corpse Be Raped? And in the case of Carmilla and Lucy, does this reframe their monstrous nature? Whether we agree with the technicalities of how laws govern the treatment of human remains or not, one thing these laws tell us about ourselves is how we idealistically view the human body. If we assert through law that a body that isn't alive still has the right to its organs, or that it may not be dismembered for any purpose outside of obtaining legal evidence, as decided by a court order, the answer to Kelly's question leans more towards the yes end of the scale, because these women, though dead, would still have the right to their autonomy, and consent cannot be given. Through this lens, it paints the men of both Carmilla and Dracula in a far more damning light, similar to the way we see the men in the trailer for Promising Young Woman. To be clear, these scenes are depicted as men taking away the power that made these women monstrous, and restoring order through violent domination and destruction of something that challenged them. You'll recall that Lucy's innocence only returned after her horrifying death, and it was at that moment that Van Helsing told Arthur that he may kiss his now idealistically dead bride. This is ultimately where the world of horror and the thriller differ, because while the deadly woman who so frightened the men before can and does get killed as a kind of climax, in horror sometimes even that won't stop her. Take, for instance, the ghostly presence of Rebecca in the book and Hitchcock film of the same name. In this case, her body is never on display, even after it's found, but her shadow looms so large over Manderley, her successor cannot find her way out of it, even by the end. While not a femme fatale in the classic sense, what makes Rebecca special is the fact that her power has transcended death, and even though her killer is never brought to justice for her murder, her memory haunts everything about his home and life well after. If you haven't read the book or seen the film, we are about to reveal one of the big twists of the story here, so be forewarned. What makes Daphne du Maurier's story so enduring and haunting is the way in which it fails to re-establish the order of the day. In the end, Rebecca is still dead, and her husband is able to escape justice for killing her and move on with his new wife, but it is a Pyrrhic victory at best. 
Maxim never does live happily ever after, and the new Mrs. De Winter is never named. Their existence after Mrs. Danvers, who had acted as the hand of the title character in her absence, burns their home to the ground, is a hollow one, filled with boring day-to-day -day activities that are kept intentionally bland, lest anything reawaken Maxim's trauma. In life, Rebecca had flaunted her lack of fidelity to him and gone out of her way to humiliate and defy her husband, denying any claims he had on her or her body. When her death reveals that she was not pregnant, as previously assumed, but suffering with cancer, she managed to cheat both her husband and her lover out of their legacies. Even her death, according to Maxim anyway, was on her own terms. There can be some debate about this considering that he shot her and insisted after the fact that she had coaxed him into it, but even if we take his word for it, this means that the ultimate loser in this scenario is always going to be Maxim and never Rebecca. Her reputation was never lost, her body remains her own, and she was never forced to settle for anything she didn't want. And with that, my dear listeners, I think we can leave our killer queens to their next victims. As always, I want to thank you for letting me be your guide through the first half of our episodes on killer queens, and I hope you'll join me next time for our look at Monstrous Maidens. The Armchair Scholar's Guide was researched and written by Danielle Claussen. All additional resources for the episodes will be in the show notes, and those are available under the heading Litanies on my website, thesinistergardenlegacy.com. For transcripts of the episodes, I'll point you over to my Patreon. Patrons contributing $2 and up get transcripts and every episode early. $5 patrons get to hear bloopers, which mostly entail me singing about cars and my cat's many interruptions. And speaking of patrons, very special thanks to Maggie, Tim, Jonathan, Melissa, and Rihanna. Your support means the world to me, and without you, this podcast wouldn't be available as widely as it is. Extra special thanks, as always, to Jonathan Glass, who works behind the scenes to make sure the sound is the best it can be. Be sure to check out his work on Spotify or Apple Music. And we can't forget to say thank you to our friend of the podcast, Naomi, over at Dope Nostalgia Podcast. She's got some killer interviews coming up for the holiday season, so you should check her out. And until next time... Remember to keep studying, and wherever possible, let curiosity be your guide.